Welcome to the Unreported World podcast, Spring 2014. In Lebanon, Neighbours at War, I visit both sides of the lines in the Lebanese city of Tripoli, where Sunni Muslim fighters are besieging an Alawite neighbourhood in a conflict mirroring that just over the border in Syria. I uncover a vicious, low-level war of sniping, assassinations and kneecappings, and meet commanders and gunmen who revel in killing their neighbours, and whose hate has clearly become habit. In the Lebanese city of Tripoli, close to the border with Syria, neighbours are at war. Just as in Syria, here Sunni Muslims are fighting Alawites. On the Sunni front line is Abu Ali. He used to run a snooker hall. On the hill above, on the Alawite front line, Kamal, who's a taxi driver. Their conflict is a threat to the whole of Lebanon, a country fractured by religious differences. You have four or five days, you pimps and sons of whores. Then we'll shoot you in the heads, you sons of pigs. From his command centre, Abu Ali taunts his Alawite neighbours. He and the 30 gunmen he leads are Sunni Muslims, like most people in the city. An Alawite fighter responds in a mocking falsetto. He's somewhere close in Jabal Mosin, the besieged neighbourhood where the city's Alawite minority live. You pigs and sons of pigs. Where are you talking from? Abu Ali and his fighters monitor the Alawite houses on the hill above the front line, ready for any attack. He blames his neighbours for supporting President Assad, himself an Alawite, in his war against Sunni rebels in Syria. It's just an hour's drive away. If anything happens, the weapons are here. As long as there are Syrian people being slaughtered in Syria, our duty and religion tells us to support them. Tonight, there's no sign of any attack. So Abu Ali plays as a recording he made during the last clash. This man who died was shooting at houses for three days. We exchanged shots. I shot him in the chest and he fell on his balcony. Then the moment that the Alawite man's wife discovers he's been killed by Abu Ali his Sunni enemy. What do you think when you listen to this? He brought it on himself. I recorded it to make them listen to it. This is how those who play with fire end up. These pictures show some of the Sunni Muslim fighters led by Abu Ali's fellow commanders. 
The 60,000 Alawites they're attacking in the Jabal Mosin enclave have close ties with Lebanon's many Shia Muslims. Each clash heightens the chance of conflict across Lebanon between Sunni and Shia. We finally leave Abu Ali's bunker. The two communities fought during Lebanon's civil war in the 1980s. Now, since the war in Syria began, violence has begun to reach the same intensity. 130 people from both sides have been killed in this area in the past year. But this morning, it's quiet, so we take a quick look at his Alawite enemies up the hill in Jabal Mosin. This is all the front line. So this side is Alawite? Just, just these houses here? This is all theirs. And this is Sunni? Yes. It's so close. They claim to be nationalists, but they have nothing to do with Lebanon. Their loyalty is to Assad's Syrian regime. A few days later, I crossed the lines to the Alawite district. Well, up here on the Alawite side in Jabal Mosin, this row of houses is literally the front line and it looks down onto Abu Ali's compound and we're here to meet one of the street commanders in this area. His name is Kamal. Kamal Sana and his friends are remembering Fawaz Ibrahim, a neighbour shot by a sniper a few days before. Kamal and other Alawites belong to a sect with its roots in Shia Islam. But they drink alcohol and women often wear Western clothes. We're in Lebanon, but the talk is about Syria. Why are people fighting? Honestly, we've been neighbours all our lives. We used to go down, they'd come up to us. They hate the Syrian regime. To put it bluntly, they hate the Alawites. And we are Alawites, and we support Bashar al-Assad. Kamal's brother, Nadir, was a celebrated Alawite fighter. He was killed by a sniper, firing from the Sunni neighbourhood, Bab al-Tabeni. This is the wall that Kamal built after the shooting dead of his brother right here. And it's trying to block out the line of sight of snipers down in Bab al-Tabeni which you can still see just through there. My house, Baiti, OK? This is all... I From here? Another freshly built wall protects the door to Kamal's house. Right over there is Abu Ali's place, and that's the alleyway down into his house. Inside Kamal's home, the windows of his children's bedroom have been blown in by a mortar landing outside. I ask if they still use the room. Only if there are clashes involving bullets. If there are mortars, we cannot sleep here. We go down to the shelter and hide. Kamal's wife, Rola, says over the last three years, living here has become terrifying. But this is their family home, and they don't want to leave. 
When there is shooting, they don't go to school. They are afraid. When they play, they play at shooting. This is our life. From Kamal's roof, you can glimpse the enemy below. But when there's fighting, his men use a nearby apartment block. It's so the bullets don't hit you. Here it's open, you can't protect yourself. What weapons do you use? Kalashnikovs, M16s, VALs, anything. No one's willing to even discuss whether these weapons come from the Assad regime in Syria. They are acutely aware of the power of the media here on the Alawite side, and they are frankly paranoid about us. And we are under a condition at the moment that we will not film their weapons. To my astonishment, Kamal decides to stand defiantly on the roof of his house. The Sunnis down the hill are getting twitchy. Kamal gets a phone call saying they're threatening to shoot, but he gambles that today no one is in the mood for a firefight. In the few minutes that we've been up on Kamal's roof, it's caused a lot of agitation over on the other side, and there are some men up on a roof on the Sunni side next to one of their fortresses who are out on the roof too, and Kamal is quite determined to stand there on the edge and sip his coffee. There's a lot of bravado going on here. Back down the hill in the Sunni neighbourhood, I find Abu Ali behind his apartment block. In the streets close to the front line, keeping out of sight of the Alawite guns is part of daily life. Sniper curtains hang across side streets to block the view. Posters commemorate the latest local martyrs, some killed here in Lebanon, others in Syria, fighting with the Sunni rebels. Abu Ali takes me back inside his block of flats with its maze of knocked-out walls. Eventually, we reach his apartment. His son Ali is 11. He's keen to learn his father's ways. So what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to shoot at Jawal Mohsen. Here's an M16. We use this one for snipers. I've been told Abu Ali gets cash from Sunni politicians. He insists he's helped by his brother in Germany. Being a militant is expensive. This M16 costs three and a half thousand dollars. This one costs one and a half thousand dollars. And both these weapons, you have the sight for long distance shooting? This is the sight. So you're using it as a sniper rifle? I use it for sniping. He boasts he can kill people a kilometre away. How many people have you killed with this? God knows. You must remember them. 
I remember them. They deserved it. Abu Ali's wife, Hilal, is a Sunni Muslim who comes from Syria and strongly supports the rebels fighting the Assad regime. Her mother still lives in the Syrian city of Homs, where there's been fierce fighting. They're starving in Homs and we're eating. She hopes her son Ali will soon be old enough to go there to fight. If he could manage, I would send him to Syria. Aren't you afraid for him? No, he's just like any other. Just like the others who go there and die. It's hard to see how these kids have got a chance of escaping this. Ali is 11, his little brother Saad is 8, and they're sitting there playing with bullets and M16s. And the parents in me with children similar ages finds it horrific. Outside, the Lebanese army is patrolling. They're supposed to keep the two sides apart but they're wary of getting sucked into the fighting. Abu Ali claims he's on their wanted list. Back inside Abu Ali's HQ, I meet a gunman. His speciality is kneecapping Alawites who venture from their neighborhood into the city center. How many Alawites have you kneecapped? Around 45 of them. Why do you do it? Because they are killing us. They're fighting us and we'll fight back. When you see the pain that it causes, do you not feel any guilt? You feel as if you are getting your own back in a very small way. He says he's planning more shootings in the coming days. All of these are for Jabal Mosin. You have 18, 31, 15 all for Jabal Mosin. The images are filmed and shared to strike fear into the Alawites of Jabal Mosin. This latest phase in hostilities began after the bombing of two Sunni mosques last August. Two Alawites are among those who've been arrested for the attacks. Back up the hill in Jabal Mosin, I join Kamal as he heads out in his taxi, a handgun tucked into his waist. So how dangerous is it now for you as a taxi driver? Very. I can't work as I used to. Going outside our area is too difficult. Especially me, because I'm known and my brother, who was a martyr, was well known. We have to turn now. Snipers have killed men here. This is our limit. At the taxi driver's coffee shop, you get a sense of this neighbourhood under siege. No one will risk the ten-minute drive to the city centre. Do you still work outside Jabal Mosul? No, I work inside Jabal Mosin. It's very difficult. We can't leave the area at all. I'm always afraid. Wherever I go, I'm scared. Kamal's neighbour, Ali Asir, is also a taxi driver. Or he was, 
before he was dragged out of his car in Tripoli and shot 13 times. We've seen evidence that suggests one of his attackers was the gunman I met earlier down the hill in Babel Tabeni. Fourteen or fifteen armed men stopped me and dragged me out of the car. They put me in a corner and started shooting. I ran and they shot me from behind. Then I got to Abu Ali roundabout and collapsed. It was a horrible moment. I thought I'm not going to get rid of them. Evil and violence were in their eyes. They swore at my religion and my sect. I have never held a gun in my life. I am a peaceful man. Even though he's lucky to be alive, Ali Asir's suffering is far from over. Six weeks after his attack, there was more tragedy. My wife was standing here. He fired 30 bullets at her. One hit her in the ear and passed through her head. I was not at home. I found her on the floor here and blood was all around her. A criminal sight, a horrific sight. I fell to the floor and started screaming. The guys took her away and I broke down. To this day I'm devastated. Next door in Kamal's home, his family are watching the funeral of an Alawite neighbour killed fighting for the regime in Syria. Kamal says he wants to impress on his kids his belief that Sunnis want to destroy them, whether in Syria or here in Lebanon. Down the hill at Abu Ali's HQ, they're celebrating. An Alawite working as a hospital receptionist in the city centre has just been shot. I have another picture. Look at the blood. Abu Ali's right-hand man, Fadi, claims he shot the man. I'm not sure I believe him. Were you not worried that there would be security guards there who would come and get you? If anybody gets close to me, I'll shoot him. I take hand grenades with me. I take the pin out and put it in this pocket. If a crowd comes at me, I take it out and throw it at them. Whether it's true or not, it's a menacing performance. Fad is very agitated today and he's clearly in a strange mood. And things feel different and much more edgy than when we've met him in the past. Back inside, we're told to turn off the camera. Fadi and Abu Ali demand $2,000 as payment for filming and threaten to hold us until they get the cash. One of our local contacts eventually persuades them to let us go. Many Lebanese believe some armed groups have as much to do with criminality as ideology. We've had to leave in a hurry because things changed very dramatically in there very quickly. Fadi had been in this odd mood. There was talk of money, and it, it was clear that they were turning on us, and so we managed to negotiate our way out. 
and I think that's going to be the last we see of Abu Ali and his men. I want to find out if the man shot this morning is still alive. It's dangerous for Alawites to be treated in the city, so they're usually taken to a hospital outside Tripoli. The victim is called Ghazi, and I just met his brother outside, but he's too afraid to appear on camera himself. He says his brother is just being taken into surgery and has got eight wounds. When he comes round, I'm allowed to talk to Ghazi about what happened. He opened the door and said, I want to talk to you, come out. I told him I won't come out. He took two guns and started shooting me here, here, here. I fell on the floor, my leg was broken and he carried on shooting. The Alawite man in the next bed has also just been kneecapped by Sunni gunmen. If the people in Jabal Mosin and Babel Tabani could hear your message, what would you say to them? We are all family, all brothers. There's no difference between one person and another. There are many decent people, but a very small group is dragging down the whole area. So soon after surgery, I think Ghazi is amazingly resilient and, and well-spoken, and the most striking thing about him is the lack of anger and his desire to be conciliatory. When I asked him what his message was to both sides, to talk about us all being one family is, is a pretty amazing reaction. Since filming, the Lebanese army has moved to arrest suspects accused of involvement in clashes between Jabal Mohsen and Babel Tabani. Abu Ali and Kamal both remain at large. The Unreported World podcast accompanies the critically acclaimed Channel 4 television series. Explore more by visiting channel4.com slash unreportedworld, where you'll find full programmes on 4OD that can be viewed from anywhere in the world, and Unreported World Shorts, which give you the facts and context for each report in just a couple of minutes. 